Well, we're continuing our study through the book of Revelation. How many like to read this book? How many understand this book when you read it? <clears throat> well, I'm gonna start out by saying I'm not a scholar, but I'm doing my best to study to show myself approved by God. So why are we studying Revelation? It's not gonna happen when we're here, right? Christians are gonna be gone, why are we studying? Well, back to our main verse, Revelation 1.3, it says, God blesses the one who reads this prophecy to the church. I want blessed, so I'm gonna read it. And he blesses all who listen to it and obey what it says. For the time is near when these things will happen. So I know you wanna be blessed as well. And we know, more importantly, that these things are gonna happen soon. And we want everybody to be ready for it because we really don't wanna be here when this stuff happens. When Joshua was about to enter the promised land, he told the people, Joshua 3, 5, he says, purify yourself, for tomorrow the Lord will do great wonders among you. Then when God was about to expose sin in the camp, Joshua 7, 13 says, get up, command the people to purify themselves in preparation for tomorrow. When God is about to do something miraculous, he tells his people to get ready. Purify ourselves, get ready for that. Which is why verse three says, obey what it says. Some versions use the word consecrate. But in either case, the same principle applies. We need to purify ourselves in preparation for what's coming soon. We're up through chapter five and we're gonna start chapter six now. Now we finished up chapter five which sets the scene in heaven. And we'll show that little image kind of whatever, there we go. That's, that's an artist's rendition of what chapter five is supposed to look like. So you got the 24 elders, you got the, the living creatures, got God on the throne. That's, that's as close as an image as we're gonna get of chapter five. So now in chapter six, we're still here. We're still in the presence of God on the throne. Jesus took the scroll. Jesus is getting ready to open the scroll. All of those things are getting ready to happen now in chapter six. Jesus shows up. He's in the form of a lamb that was sacrificed. God the Father passes the scroll to Jesus, signifying that now Jesus is in control. God the Father has passed authority now onto Jesus. Jesus is now going to open the scroll and he's gonna show us what's going to happen in the end times. Most scholars believe that what's happening now is the first half of the tribulation, which we think is the, the easy part. This is the first half. Revelation chapter six, verse one says, as I watched, the lamb broke the first, first of the seven seas, seals on the scroll. Now, most scholars believe that the breaking of the first seal signifies the start of the great tribulation. This is also the time that the Antichrist signs a treaty with Israel. Some believe these judgments start right away. Some believe it describes the second half of the tribulation. It doesn't matter when it happens. I believe it's the first half, but it doesn't matter. It's gonna happen, and we're not gonna wanna be here for it. The first half of the tribulation is when the Antichrist signs that peace treaty with Israel it's at halfway point, he breaks that treaty and more bad things happen. But as Jesus opens his seals, these judgments don't take place as the seals are opened. As he opens his seals, John sees a vision of what's going to happen. So he opens one by one, he sees all these visions, 
After he opens all seven, then is when they start taking place. In chapter eight, when Jesus breaks the last seal, it says this in verse one, when the lamb breaks the seventh seal, there was silence throughout heaven for about a half an hour. So it appears that all these visions were given at the same time as he opens each seal. And when the last one is given, heaven's silent, and now they're waiting for these judgments to actually happen. So all the seals were now open at the end, chapter eight, and now the scroll can be fully opened and read. So let's go back to verse one at the first seal. Revelation six, verse one. It says, then, I, then one of the four living beings called out with a voice that sounded like thunder. Come, I looked up and saw a white horse. Its rider carried a bow and a crown was placed on his head. He rode out to win many battles and gain the victory. Now, a lot of people think that's Jesus, but it's not. It's actually the Antichrist. When the living creature yells, come, most commentators in the verse itself seem to indicate that he's commanding the horse and the rider to come or to appear, and he's telling this to John. He's saying, he's not talking to John. John, seeing him, call forth the rider. And John is now looking at what is going to happen. He's a spectator. The creature's not talking to him. He's talking to the white horse. He's talking to the white horse. He's telling the rider to come. And a white horse in ancient times was a symbol of victory after a battle. He carried a bow, which is a symbol of battle. The rider is also wearing a victor's crown. And now all this is before the battle even takes place, which indicates that the battle is a foregone conclusion that he is going to win at this particular moment. So who's the rider? Doesn't say, but most commentators believe it's the Antichrist. Daniel 9, 26. It says, after this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed, that's Jesus, appearing to have accomplished nothing, and a ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the temple and the city. That's when the Romans destroyed the temple in 70 AD. Now we skip ahead to the end times, which is the next verse. The end will come with a flood, and a war and its miseries are decreed from that time to the very end. He, the Antichrist, will make a treaty with the people of Israel for a period of seven, and seven years of tribulation. But after half this time, he will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings. Then as a climax to all his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration until the end that has been decreed is poured out on this defiler. So the writer is now the, is the Antichrist. He's gonna be able to deceive the Gentiles. He's gonna win them over, which is gaining the victory in the battle, without even a, a war, because he's gonna give them this false, fake peace treaty. And through that, he's gonna win the battle because he deceives them into believing that the treaty is true. So you come to the next seal, the red horse, verse three. It's when the lamb broke the second seal, I heard a second living being say, come. And again, he's calling forth the horse and rider on the red horse. The rider was given a mighty sword and its authority to remove peace from the earth. And there was war and slaughter everywhere. Again, the second creature calls for the rider to come. And now the riders, instead of being a person, they are personified as events. This rider is the personification of war. Now up to this point, there was peace because of the treaty. Three and a half years of peace. But now the Antichrist breaks that treaty and now peace is gone. The rider of the red horse now has a weapon of death and authority from God to start the judgments. At the three and a half year mark, the treaty is broken and the Antichrist gives the order to make war with the world. People will die 
from the war, obviously being soldiers, but the term slaughter implies that there will be brutal killings of all kinds, not just the folks who are involved in the war, but from all kinds of violence. You look at, I mean, you look back just to World War II. How many people died that weren't in the war? Just casualties because of the violence that was going on. And now that peace has been taken away, it's not going to appear again until the Prince of Peace comes back. Because the end of verse 4 says, the writer was giving a mighty sword and authority to what? To remove peace from the earth. You know, when the Bible says the, the church is gone at that moment, the restrainer is gone, the Holy Spirit's gone, can you imagine what the world's going to be like without any influence of God at all? The Holy Spirit's not going to be relevant in the church age. People will be saved. The Holy Spirit will be here, but it's not going to have the power and the authority it has now through the church. When men are left to themselves to do whatever they want to do, it's never good. It's always horrific. Just look back at the dictators throughout the world. Hitler, Pol Pot, Stalin, Mao. Killed millions, millions of people. And that's when the church was here. Can you imagine when the church is gone, how much horror it's going to be? So we come to the next seal. Verse 5, when the lamb broke the third seal, I heard the third living being saying, come. And I looked up and saw a black horse, and its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hands. And a voice from among the four living beings said, a loaf of wheat bread or three loaves of barley for a day's pay. And don't waste the olive oil and wine. Again, the living creature is calling for the writer to start this mission. It's a personification of famine, hunger, and suffering. Because food will be scarce and unaffordable. Think about it, what's happening now. We have that supply chain thing that's going on. A lot of empty shelves. But we're still able to get food. There's going to be a time where there's not going to be any food to be gotten. There will be famine and there will be hunger and there will be great suffering because not only will the food be scarce, the food that we will have will be unaffordable because unless you take the mark, you're not going to be able to buy the food. Jeremiah told us this in Jeremiah chapter 4. Verse 26 says, I looked and the fertile fields became a wilderness. The cities lay in ruins, crushed by the Lord's fierce anger. This is what the Lord says, the whole land will be ruined, but I will not destroy it completely. The earth will mourn and the heavens will be draped in black. Again, going back to the black horse. Because of my decree against my people, I have made up my mind and I will not change it. Lamentations 4.8 says, but now their faces are blacker than soot. No one even recognizes them. Their skin sticks to their bones. It is as dry and hard as wood. Those killed by the sword are far better off than those who die of hunger, wasting away for want of food. So the black horse, which is famine, follows the red horse, which is war. What is the natural aftermath of war? Look at Europe after World War II. You know, England was destroyed. Berlin was wiped out. The destruction caused by the war leaves the ability to grow food harder, if not impossible. Fields are destroyed. Crops haven't been planted years because of the fighting. Famine is going to be the natural outpouring of the horror that the war is going on. 
Verse six says, and don't waste the olive oil and wine, which seems kind of a weird thing to put in there. But olive trees and grapevines are not as affected as the rest of crops during a famine. They can grow on their own. He's saying to treat them wisely because they're around, you can use them, but they're not gonna be here forever. So you need to be careful with the food that is left. There's gonna be very little left. Olive oil and wine, that's what's left. Be careful with it. And some commentators believe that only the rich are gonna have access to these things and they're gonna control the distribution of these things. And we kind of see that now. When there's no food, people are gonna want someone to ration it. Someone that they're gonna give the power to, to ration the food. So to make sure everybody gets a little bit. That's never worked. For the people who control the rationing, they ration it to whom they want. And again, we saw that in every communist country in the world. You know, you wonder how the Antichrist gets power. That's how he gets power. People are gonna want someone to help them. People are gonna want someone to provide for them. And they're gonna give up their freedom in order to let someone provide for them. Does that sound familiar? What's the saying that those who give up freedom for security deserve neither? And we'll get neither. Because once you give up that freedom and you give someone that power, you're not gonna get it back. The next one is the pale horse, verse seven. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the fourth living being say, come. And I looked up and saw a rider whose color was pale green like a corpse. And death was the name of its rider who was followed around by the grave. They were given authority over one-fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and disease and wild animals. Now this is the last horse referenced by the seals. So we had the Antichrist as the first rider, the personification of war, then the personification of famine and hunger. Now we have the personification of death and the grave. Do you see a succession? This is the rider of death. Now Jesus tells us who controls death in the grave. Revelation 1.18, it says, I am the living one who died. Look, I am forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. So what's that mean? That means Jesus is giving authority to this rider to go and kill. And then, whatever he doesn't kill with the sword, he's gonna kill with famine. And whatever he doesn't kill with famine, he's gonna kill with disease. And whoever's left is gonna be killed by wild animals. And he's under God's authority, which means this is God carrying out his judgment on the world. And here, death is authorized to kill one-fourth of the whole population of the world. How many billions of people is that? What's the population of the world, about? Five billion, so you, eight billion, so you have two billion. Two billion people that will be killed. And what, remember last week we talked about these are not symbols, 
These are not allegories. These are true events that are going to happen. This isn't a parable where he's trying to say something else. This is a true event. What follows death? Well, the grave. As he says, he's followed by the grave. And here the word is Hades, which is the place of the dead. Death takes the body. Hades takes the soul. And what's happening is the dead are receiving their wages. Romans 6, 16, don't you realize that whatever you choose to obey becomes your master? You can choose sin, which leads to death. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus says, the rich man also died and was buried, and being in torment in Hades. He lifted his eyes and saw Abraham afar off. Same word, grave in Hades. So death is being trailed by the grave or Hades. So when the people die physically, their spirit now goes into Hades. And we know at this particular point, the only part of Hades that exists is the torment side because the paradise side of Hades is now with Jesus when he ascended, he took that with him. Most, be- most believe that this, since this is the last horse, this judgment happens to be near in the tribulation or more than halfway. From the first horse until now, a fourth of the population's gone. And we move on from the four horsemen to the next seal, which is martyrs in verse nine. Is when the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all who have been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their witness. So we, we move from John seeing what's gonna happen on earth to now seeing what's happening in heaven. These are the martyrs from all time who have been killed for the cause, been killed for Christ, praying for something to happen to those who killed them. When God says vengeance is his, he means not only he will do it, but it's gonna be in his time, not our time. How many would like instant gratification for vengeance? Come on. We all would like it. We all wanna see the bad people get their comeuppance. But God says vengeance is his. He's gonna do it in his timing. Because we read this verse, it says in verse 10, they called loudly to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will it be before you judge the people who belong to this world for what they have done to us? When will you avenge our blood against these people? So even the folks who were martyred for for God are wondering when are they gonna get their payback? When are they gonna get what's due to them? They sent us here, they martyred us. Don't you care, Lord? They're still there, what's gonna happen? It, it, you look at the world and it seems like that the wickedness continues to grow and righteousness is decreasing. Well, we know that's what the Bible says is gonna happen. But we kind of want it to happen. We want God to do something about it. In other words, when are you gonna let the world see that you're God? When are you gonna let the world see your power? 
When are you going to avenge and let people know that you're true? When Moses, when the people of Israel sinned and God, or Moses was praying, and what did God say? Stand back, Moses. I'm going to wipe them out. Exodus 32.10 says, Now leave me alone in my anger so my anger can blaze against them and destroy them all. Then I will make you, Moses, into a great nation instead of them. If I'm Moses, I'm like, have at it, man. <laughs> Go to town. Why? Because they, they were nothing but moaners and complainers. And you just want to say, okay, do it. But what did Moses say? In verse 12, he says, The Egyptians will say, God tricked them into coming to the mountains so he could kill them and wipe them from the face of the earth. He wasn't worried about the Israelites. He was worried about what people would say about God. And when the, the martyrs were saying the same thing, they weren't worried about judgment. They were worried about what people were going to say about God. Lord, these people, they killed us, and the world thinks they're doing it right. When are you going to show them that they're wrong? What is, and they said, when? When are you going to do it? Not if he was going to do it. They knew it was going to happen. They just wanted God to show that he was God so that people wouldn't mock him. But verse 11 says, then a white robe was given to each of them. And they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus, had been martyred. He's telling them more are coming. Wow. But this tells us that every martyr is going to be in heaven, regardless of when they died. It tells us that their sacrifice was not an accident. Their being martyred wasn't an accident. It wasn't the enemy getting his way. The accident was not, or the martyrdom was not out of God's control. God's saying, or Jesus saying, there, there's more that's going to be martyred. I know it, and I'm allowing it to happen. And it's going to be an appointment. Death is an appointment for everybody. George Whitfield quoted Augustine. He says, we are immortal until our work is done. In other words, as long as we're doing God's work, we're not going to die until God says it's time. I like David Jeremiah's version a little bit better. It says, a man or woman in the will of God is immortal until their work is done. Because we can short-circuit what God wants to do by our own flesh, by doing something Suicide, whatever. We can shorten what God wants to do. But if we're doing what God wants us to do, we're only going to die when God says it's time. That tells me I shouldn't be fearful about it. Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. So we're all destined. We all know that. We kind of don't want to think about it. And the older we are, the more we think about it. Psalm 139, 16 says, All the days ordained for me were written in your book. So God knows what day it's going to be. He knows if it's going to be today. He knows it's going to be next year, next month. He knows when it's going to be. So even in death, 
Who's in control? God's in control. So as believers, we don't have anything to fear. Now we've been talking about learning to wait on God in our Wednesday night class. And Jesus is telling them the same thing. Verse 11 says, and they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters were martyred. The book of Revelation tells us that some are going to take a stand for Christ during the tribulation and they're going to be martyred. Now it's early and I know you're upset but I'm going to close with this. We'll pick it up next week but this is, if you don't hear anything, listen to this. The tribulation is a time of God's judgment not of God's mercy. God's mercy is today. The uh, tribulation is God's judgment. And the people who take their stand there who have never heard the gospel before, they're gonna get saved during the tribulation. Now I've mentioned before that the Bible says that if you hear the gospel now and you reject it now, once the tribulation happens, once the church is gone, you're not going to be able to get saved. Now I'm gonna back that up with scripture this morning. Because you would think that once people see the church disappears, maybe they've heard the gospel and they know about the rapture and they all that kind of stuff and all of a sudden the church is gone. You would think, they, man, I gotta get right with God now. It's not happening. Revelation 9 verse 20 says, the rest of mankind that were not killed by the plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons or idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols they cannot hear or see or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, or sexual immorality, or their thefts. In fact, the word tells us exactly the opposite is gonna happen. The people are gonna be deceived and their hearts are gonna be hardened after the rapture happens. Second Thessalonians, Two, and this is the chapter about the rapture and what happens in the tribulation. For that day will not come, which is, which is the second coming of Christ, not the rapture, the second coming of Christ, until there is a great rebellion against God and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the one who brings destruction. He will exalt himself and defy every God there is and tear down every object of adoration and worship. He will position himself in the temple of God, claiming that he himself is God. Don't you remember that I told you this when I was with you? And you know what is holding him back. That's us, the Holy Spirit, the church. For he can be revealed only when this, this, his time comes. For this lawlessness is already at work secretly, and it will remain secret until the one who is holding it back steps out of the way. Again, the Holy Spirit, the church. Then the men of lawlessness will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Second coming. This evil man will come to do the work of Satan with counterfeit power and signs and miracles. He will use every kind of wicked deception to fool those who are on their way to destruction. Why? Because they refuse to believe the truth that would save them. In other words, they're hearing the gospel before the rapture and they refuse to believe. Verse 11, after the church is gone, so God will send great deception upon them during the tribulation and they will believe all the lies of the Antichrist. 
Then they will be condemned for not believing the truth before the rapture and for enjoying the evil that they do after the rapture. Second Corinthians 6, 2. He says, for in the time of my favor, I heard you. When is God's favor? Now, the church age. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. And I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. That day ends with the church age. If you hear the gospel now and you reject it, you will not be saved after the rapture. That is very scary. There are people in churches all the time that have heard it and still walk out. I try to give an altar call every Sunday. Why? Because we need to know we need to get right with God now. There's no second chance after you die and there's no second chance after the rapture. God's favor will end when the rapture happens. Those who have heard his message, the Bible says God will give a deception upon them and they won't believe it. They will believe the lies of the enemy. They will not believe the truth. Now, if you've never heard the gospel, which is none of you can say that, if you've never heard it, you can get saved during the tribulation. Or if you're a child now, you don't understand it. When you get older, seven years from now or six years from now, and you understand it, you can get saved. But if you're an adult and you understand it, the Bible says today, you need to repent today. Because there's no guarantee that there's going to be a tomorrow. Now, those of you who know Tiff, uses the quote I love. He says, prophecy isn't meant to scare you, but to prepare you. If we want to miss this stuff, that means we've got to be ready now. Because there's going to, if, and I said it before, if, if you think that you can live however you want, and you're still going to make the rapture, I wouldn't bank on that. I would not, and the Bible says, knowing these things, we purify ourselves even as these things are pure, knowing that Christ is going to return. You, you, you keep right. The Bible says if, you know, a master goes away and he tells his servants to take care of the place, and they say, hey, he's not coming back for a while. I'm, I'm going to live like I want. And he comes, the servant comes back, or the master comes back, what happens? Servant doesn't get let off the hook. Servant's in trouble. He gets punished. That's a parable about being ready for the rapture. Just because you said a prayer when you were five years old doesn't mean you're going to make the rapture. We talked about eternal security a while ago. The Bible says, not only do you say that prayer, but you have to live. We're not perfect. We sin all the time. But do we purify ourselves? Every time the Israelites were going into battle, God says, change your clothes, take a bath, purify yourself. Why? You're getting rid of all the stuff that's in you and get ready for what God's going to do next. And we've been praying for God to show up and do great things in our church. But there's a codicil to that. We have to be ready for that. We have to be prepared for that. That means our devotional life has to be current. We have to be praying and have a devotional life every day, not just on Sundays. You know, the Bible refers to itself as food. I don't think anybody here eats one meal a week. Because if you wait for Sunday, 
to get all your nourishment, 45 minutes is not enough nourishment of God's word for you or for me. Prophecy isn't meant to scare you, it's meant to prepare you. However, on the other side of that, if you don't know Christ, it should scare you to death. Now, Jesus never scared anybody into the kingdom of God. But he did want them to know what's coming so they can make an informed decision about who Jesus is and do they believe what Jesus says. And everything Jesus has prophesied or God has prophesied up to now, except for the tribulation part, has happened. So if he's right 100% of the time to now, I believe he's going to be right the rest of the time. And we're seeing things now that God prophesied. Tiff had a great example that they reclaimed Jerusalem as the capital of Israel exactly 40 years after Israel became a nation, just as God prophesied that it would. So we're already seeing that happen. So the next thing that is on the prophetic calendar is the rapture. There is nothing that's stopping that from coming. Nothing. Once that happens, then all this stuff takes place. And if God's been right up to this point, there's no reason to doubt he's not gonna be right for what's coming. Would you stand as we close this morning? If you bow your head for a moment. The Bible says that Jesus did not appoint us to wrath, but to escape what's coming. He never meant anybody to go through this tribulation, never meant anybody to go to hell. The Bible says that hell was created for the devil and his angels. It wasn't created for us. But what God does do, he allows us to have the choice. He's not gonna make you do anything. He's gonna let you do what you wanna do. If you want to live like you want to live, God's going to let you do that. He may try to convict you as we pray for you. He may put thoughts in your mind that you need to get right with God, but he's going to let you make that choice on your own. And the choice you make now determines the choice you're going to make in the future. If you choose now to not accept Christ, God's going to say, okay, it's your choice. But that also means you're gonna suffer the consequences of that choice. But if today's the day of salvation and today's the day you say, you know what, Lord, I, I, don't, all, I don't understand all of this stuff. I don't understand most of it. But I do know that you're a God who loves me, who cares for me, and who wants a relationship with me. I do believe that. And the rest I'll learn. If you make that choice today, then you also get the consequences of that, which is heaven and paradise with Jesus. So if you're here and you've never really committed to Christ, you've, you've heard the gospel, and if you've heard the gospel, that means you're accountable for that. If you've heard it, and now you want to make that choice, now you say, yes, Jesus, I really believe that in myself, I, I'm, I'm a sinner, I can't make it to heaven. But I believe that your death paid my debt and because of your death and my trusting in that, now I'm assured that I'm gonna be in heaven. Not because of anything I've done other than believe 
and trust in what you have already done. If you want to make that commitment to Christ, you want to repent of your prior life, your sin, God says, I'll give you a clean slate. All your sins will be forgotten. I won't remember them anymore, the Bible says. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand because I'm going to pray with you. All right, I'm going to be... I'm going to believe that we're all committed followers of Christ and we're all prepared when Jesus does return. Father, thank you. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for the Spirit of God and the Father drawing us in, tolerating us, putting up with us, long-suffering with our sin. But eventually, because we came to know you, you forgot it all. You forgave all of it. And only because of you do we have this relationship. And because of what you've done for us, Lord, it motivates us to want to know you and love you and appreciate you more. And also gives us a burden for those who don't know you. We know what's coming. So, Father, we continue to pray for those on our prayer list, our family, our friends, those we know. We pray that, Father, you would intervene in their lives. Your word tells us that you want none to perish, you are long-suffering. I want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That is your will that everyone comes to know you. And your word also tells us that salvation is your job, not ours. That it's impossible for us to save anybody. But for you, it's not impossible. Nothing is too hard for you. So God, all those people we're praying for that we think that will never come to know you, that's the impossible job. And the Bible says that's your job. And you can save them. And you want to save them. So Father, I pray that your will be done in their lives, that you remove the blinders from their eyes. Allow them to see the glorious gospel of truth. Allow their eyes to be open to the truth. And allow them to really experience the life transformation that each one of us have experienced. And allow us to rejoice in the fact that when they do this, and we believe it's going to be when, not if. When they do this, Man, we are going to rejoice that God, you did the miracle. It wasn't us. We're simply praying and asking you to do the work, and we trust you to accomplish it. So, Father, we believe for those we're praying for, and we trust that you will bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ. And, Father, through all of it, we want to give you all the glory and the honor and the credit because, again, we're, we're not worthy. We want you to get the credit because only you are, are, are worthy of it. So Father, we just commit ourselves to you. And we pray that you would use us however you want in these last days. And one day we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And we commit ourselves to that end in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you, have a great week. We will see you Wednesday. And next Sunday...